Thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My name, of course, is P-E-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published, mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access patron membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, like I said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison or The Power of Flashback was one episode which explored the endings of The Godfather Part 2 sleepers and that was then this is now with the all access patron membership you'll also receive a refrigerator magnet with the chills at will podcast logo and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations literary event calendar and the chills at will podcast news you will get a shout out on a future episode too with the vip patron tier which is ten dollars a month you'll get access to all episodes a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills at Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020, and it has been an absolute pleasure, 99.999% fun. I've gotten to interview people like Disha Filia, what, Matt Bell, Brandon Hobson, Luis Alberto Orrea, Jean Guerrero, Gustavo Arellano, Taylor Bias, Gabby Bates, Alice Elliott Dark, Nadia Owusu, and so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman? Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jamil John Kochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks, 
Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Raina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Cato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Muladi Daraj, Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Jose Antonio Vargas, Laura Worrell, so, so, so many cool people. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. episode 175 of the Chills at Will podcast. I've been wanting to talk to Jordan Harper for a long time and I had a great time speaking with him. The book, as everybody knows, is from Mulholland Books and it is so, so good. Jordan Harper is the Edgar Award-winning author of Everybody Knows, She Rides Shotgun, and Love and Other Wounds. Born and educated in Missouri, he now lives in LA where he works as a writer and producer for television. Again, go buy this book, Everybody Knows. It's out now with Mulholland Books, and enjoy the episode. Jordan, how are you? Good afternoon. It's about 3 o'clock our time in LA and Sacramento. It's a pleasure to talk to you. How's it going? It's going pretty well. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It is a pleasure, you know, we were talking about before we started recording, this is, this is a, uh, just an incredible book and, um, you know, th- shout out to S.A. Cosby and, um, you know, who I, I follow on Twitter and was just like this Jordan Harper book, this Jordan Harper book. And I'm like, okay, huge, huge expectations and, and definitely exceeded them. And obviously I'm not the only one. You've gotten all kinds of accolades and, 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 and praise and we'll talk about that in a bit. I'd love to know kind of where it where it all started. I mean, um, I know you come from the Midwest. Is it, is it Missouri? Is that right? Yeah. Springfield, Missouri, which is uh, the big city of the Ozarks. Is that the capital of Missouri? No, Jefferson city is the capital of Missouri. No, why would you trust me? If that wasn't true about Jefferson city, you would never think about Jefferson city in your life. You know, no, no, no disrespect. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's just, there's no reason for you to know Jefferson. I don't know. Do you know about, I don't know if you know about Jefferson city, Twitter, they're going to go after you now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. Oh no. 
but no, just I'd love to hear about just growing up and what um what you were into as far as you know reading. Were you into like comics um and kind of like your relationship with the written word? Sure. Yeah. No. I mean, I've just I've been I was one of those uh, kids who started very early wanting to tell stories and dictating stories for my mom to write into books. Nice. And I was before I was uh, literate. Mm-hmm. Um. And, you know, just kind of growing up, I, I, I've i always my entire life been a compulsive rereader of okay. books. And I, you know, I can remember very strongly with it, it starting at least on my own with uh, Harriet the Spy, mm. um, the Great Brain books, okay. um, uh, which is a series of novels that take place in like turn of the century Utah huh. uh, with the with a boy who the narrator is a boy whose older brother is like a con artist and genius Whoa. who, who likes doing scams around this like Utah city at turn of the century. They're great books. Like a psychopath yeah. or like a lovable? No, like, well, not quite lovable, but like okay. not a psychopath, okay. but like definitely like a selfish, greedy person uh-huh. who, the, who the younger brother has to try and kind of deal with, although <laughs> capable of magnanimity and, uh, okay. you know, things like that. But um, <laughs> that and Harriet the Spy, Tom Sawyer, um a lot of uh, a lot of books about children uh misbehaving and, and and forming their own path which is really a really probably my introduction to crime fiction yeah in a very real way i mean uh, harriet the spy is very much a a, a very dark and and weird tale for, mm. for a children's book and right. um as is the great brain books and tom sawyer and 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 so you know start with that and then yes comic books and stephen king at a way too young in age um you know reading it when i was the same age as the kids in the book it and like um you know going from that on to like um you know frank herbert and dune and uh becoming obsessed with hunter s thompson as like a drug addled teenager uh in fact that's what i my first you know when i i knew i wanted to be a writer and i had written fiction as a child but like through my teenage and through up till my college years I thought I wanted to be Hunter S. Thompson hmm. uh, and in fact went to the University of Missouri uh, to become a journalism student there uh, along with being the largest college in my home state uh, University of Missouri also has a uh, like the world's first journalism school or at least this country's okay. first journalism school oh, wow. and and one of the most respected they run a daily newspaper they run a tv station it's like a real uh, real place but I I uh, I took a creative writing class before I ever took a journalism class in college. And no, that's what I wanted to do and, and stuck with, well, I went back and forth. I was, you know, uh, kind of going quickly here, but in my twenties, I was a music journalist for a few years uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. I, I was the music editor of the Riverfront times, which is like the oh, alt yeah. weekly. And I did that for a while. I wasn't particularly good at it. I'm not, I'm much more suited for making things up. Um, a lot, a lot of corrections issued in my, <laughs> on my behalf, I'm afraid to say. And, uh, and it's just, you know, also being a music critic is either a lifetime passion where yeah. you love me. I like, I like music a lot. I love music, but like, it's either a lifetime passion or you get out of it in your twenties, mm. you know? Um, yeah. and I was definitely the get out of it in your twenties, uh, guy. Okay. I appreciate that. There was, so I saw some on Twitter recently, obviously it's been, rehashed but it was about like winston churchill and his like daily diet and that's mostly mm-hmm. of, co- of cocktails mm-hmm. and that reminded me of uh, hunter s thompson i was reading a couple years ago about his have you ever seen his uh his daily intake oh yeah it's it's prodigious would be the prodigious word prodigious would be the word <laughs> man um, 
Well, that's the other thing that, you know, eventually came around for me that like being a music critic and, and, uh, uh, and having in my literal contract that I had to go to bars and nightclubs four nights a week. Uh, uh, I really enjoyed that for a while in my twenties. And now I am, gosh, I'm probably 15 years sober at this point, um, which are probably fairly connected (laughs) events, you know? (laughs) Um, and, and so I was never going to be Hunter S. Thompson, which is totally fine. And, That's a great thing. Yeah. And uh, and God, there's no place for Hunter S. Thompson anymore in this world. <laughs> That's, true. That's for sure. I'm not sure how much room there is for novelists in the same way, but like um, um, not to be dark, not to be dark. But um, so I did that for a while. And then I got to a place where, you know, my interest in crime and because uh, you're talking about like what my interests are, along mm-hmm. with the movies, you know, I came up at the right age to be obsessed with like Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, Michael Mann, like the great, that kind of, that golden era of crime films uh, was a big part of my life. My favorite TV show of all time is The Shield, um, Mm -hmm. which was at the very birth of like the golden age of television. Right. You know, all these things started coming together. I started writing short stories um, that were crime-based and getting them published in Thuglet, Todd Robinson, Mm -hmm. great magazine that was both at different times a print magazine and an online magazine Mm. you know wrote a very bad first novel that three people in the world have ever read and that's the way it's going to stay uh and then you know worked on these short stories and then i wound up moving to los angeles getting into what's called the warner brothers writers workshop actually based on a a spec ship spec script of the shield that i wrote um based on one of my short stories and uh, the Warner Brothers program, which they've just announced is shutting down, was a great training ground. It, it was a great way to break into Hollywood if you didn't have any contacts, you know, you didn't have anybody, nobody was your uncle mm-hmm. or anything right, like right, that. Right. Uh, and movies. yeah, exactly. And um, and uh, so I, you know, I got into the Warner Brothers program and, and they uh, put me in an interview with Bruno Heller, uh, mm-hmm. creator of Rome and Gotham and, oh, yeah. and to the point of this story, The Mentalist. Uh, which had just finished its first season when I met Bruno and he hired me uh, to be on the staff of The Mentalists. And I was there from season two through the end. I co-wrote the finale with Bruno and, right. and Tom St. George, a great writer. I wrote 14 or 15 episodes of The Mentalist, huh. uh, which I really consider is like going to grad school. I got paid yeah. to go to grad school. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it was it was great. And, and during that time, I started... Uh, you know, uh, working on my short stories, but also wanting to try another novel and which eventually became She Rides Shotgun. Okay. The, um, you're, you're talking about writing for TV. Like, did you, you know, sorry to use the organized crime, uh, lexicon here, but did you have to feel like you had to make your bones? I mean, how does that, how does that come about? You hear about like the writer's table, the writer's room, like, is that four people? Is that four people? And then they take it to 10 people. Like, how did that work about, you know, getting yourself, um, a, a part, a place in there where it ended up being that you co-wrote the final episode. Well, that's it. You know, writers' rooms vary and they're shrinking as episode orders shrink. So like when we did The Mentalist, we did 24 episodes of The Mentalist most years. Mm. And, you know, the kind of shows that I tend to work on now, you do eight. Right. So you have different size writers' rooms and 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 you work for less weeks of the year, which mm. making television uh you know a little harder to 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 do really well in but you know that so the mentalist floated around 10 or 11 people in the writer's yeah. room and most of us were there for the entire run or very close to it um and you know you 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 learn and this is something i tell young writers is 
you don't actually, you, your job is like a first year writer, it's called a staff writer in television. Your, your job is not to become the biggest, baddest son of a bitch in the room. Your job is to kind of sit there, absorb everything and say mm-hmm. one thing a day, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe, maybe two, <laughs> you know, but only if it's good. Like don't, nobody is, you know, that's the thing is that you just show up, you're dependable, you're fun to be in a room with because that's right. the job is sitting around a table with people. So you better have a pleasant personality. And then you just keep going and, and you you write your first script and you take notes and then you show that you can execute the notes because it's not your it's not your baby. You you know, mm-hmm. being a, a lower level TV writer is 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 doing something for somebody else. Mm-hmm. It's their vision. You know, the mentalist was Bruno Heller's baby, not mine. Um, and so you take his notes and you and you try and you show that you're you can be useful to that showrunner with the minimum amount of stress in their life. You, you know, that's really your job. And that's why you don't want to talk too much because if you're just talking to show off, that's just causing static and, and getting in the showrunner's way. You right. you want to have, I mean, not that this is, I don't know how many first year TV writers are listening, but it's your job is to say the best thing you can say all day and don't feel like you have to say anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you move up the ranks. And like I said, I was on the mentalist for seven years and most of my really, cause I did just move to LA when I got in most of my really good friends that I've had for my time in television are people I worked with on the mentalist. Cause we worked yeah. together for, for six years. And then I went from the mentalist to Gotham, which was another show that Bruno Heller created. And so there were other people, some of us from the mentalist and other people came in, okay. but like, so Rebecca Cutter, who I have worked with, um, she was on the mentalist, she was on Gotham and then she created Hightown. Uh, which I've all I did two seasons of Hightown and she was the showrunner. Um, you know, I've worked with her for nine out of my 14 years in Hollywood, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, the you learn and you get to know everybody, you just you become more useful, you get more skilled. It's I used to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which I it's not just a random statement here, <laughs> but you know, and that's that's a very belt-oriented martial art. And okay. it's not it's not a time period so much as just you get a level of experience and you kind of climb up the belts right and, and the tv writing is very similar you can be a really really talented writer uh-huh. but my opinion is you know to actually execute television you kind of have to go and you have to show up for seven or eight years before mm-hmm. i would think okay that is a that's a black belt of television you yeah, know? yeah and i do think i mean when i say seven or eight years that's what i think is like before i would think that is a that's a black belt that is a that is a person you can trust in any situation to sure. you know do what they do. Huh. appreciate that i gotta i mean the little i know of like screenplays and writing for tv and writing for the for the screen or screens plural form, fairly formulaic is that safe to say or not necessarily i mean it depends you know there is a template and it and you know the repetitive or formulaic doesn't always have to be a bad thing i think that sure. a lot of people watch a lot of television wanting that same thing but i do think for me like one of the reasons i'm so glad even though i'll be honest like the mentalist isn't the kind of show that i watch in my free time and it wasn't when i started the show and it's it's not today but like 
having to spend that kind of time getting basically most of my black belts um, on a show that is as rigidly structured as a um, as a case of the week mystery show is mm-hmm. is incredible training for plot and story okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. and and story mechanics in the same way that I believe like a poet is better served by learning how to do highly structured you know rhyming stanzas and and you know sure. uh and and, and and very formal poems and then go nuts go go be free right. poet but learn how to do learn the rules before you can break them type of thing. exactly and and i think there's a tremendous amount of, of value to that which is why i i like people when i'm hiring now that i'm at a level where i hire writers as, as mm-hmm. a head writer um i like people who have both who have yeah. uh creative drive and a creative voice of their own but also have been in the trenches yeah do you, does that does it change the way you watch TV? Are you, is it oh, like yeah. you know like a coach like a coach watching a basketball game? You know you you can't. I mean, can you can you watch TV for pleasure? I don't watch a lot of dramatic television anymore. I'll be honest. Yeah. I can watch films. I can yeah. watch films, and I don't have that feeling. And maybe I would if I wrote more screenplays for mm-hmm. features. But um, no, I don't enjoy most dramatic. Television. I also think not to be a hater, but I think we're in a very bad period of television right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you know the golden age of television ended. We nobody noticed when it ended, huh. um, but it did, and we're in we're in a very different era right now. Yeah. So when I do watch dramatic television, it and again I'm also by the way I'm old, and maybe this is just an old person's <laughs> opinion at this point that I tend to go back to that era of rewatching The Shield, rewatching Deadwood, uh, rewatching Twin Peaks. You know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. that to me those are the things I find pleasurable because I think modern television has become bifurcated, and you huh. either have case of the week network tv shows that are i'm sorry but most of them are really dumb at this point like <laughs> and then you have shows that are maybe smarter or or maybe more you know ethically interesting but don't have any structure don't have any drive okay. are missing some basic pleasures of, yeah. of of the form and my favorite things tend to be something that unifies those two drives which right. i don't think of as just being middle brow because i find most of the highfalutin television right now to be pretty middle brow oh. uh I'm, no i'm being really negative right now but i'm just like <laughs> um no i uh you know i think that um those uh, in most art forms my favorite things are people who are both trying to entertain and and, and adhere to some kind of genre and execute at a level that is yeah. equal to the the you know most uh kind of out there people so you know Everybody from David Lynch to Michael Mann in movies, you know, Elroy, obviously, hmm. uh, Corinth McCarthy, David Peace, Megan Abbott uh, in, in books, um, you know, and again, like Deadwood in, in, in television are, are those are things that have there's a thing I say in writer's rooms all the time, which is por que no las dos or why not both? You throw that like, in the book. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah, it's just yeah. it's just something that I, I I there's always these like uh categories that are placed on things that try and suggest that something has to be one way or the other and they tend to be marketing sure. ideas. They they they're just categories, they're just record shop bins that they make you put things into. Right. And then people started adhering to the laws of the bins, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that, that my next question was going to be how you thought about the the title or the label of like crime writer or writer of noir and you just can say I'm a writer. Well, look, I mean, I'm very proud of the genre that I'm in. I love crime fiction. I love uh, what I do, but I do want to be judged and and I want to be judged against everybody. Sure. You know, I, I it's not that I want to transcend the genre, which some people say I'm very proud of the genre. I just think the genre, if if the genre work is good, it's as good as anything. Yeah. 
and I want to be judged against everybody else because sure. I that's the level I'm trying to punch at. I, I am trying to exist where I think I can, you know, I, that a really great crime book, again, by like Megan Abbott, is as good as anybody else's writing books right now. And, mm-hmm. um, and ours, you know, artistically interesting, ethically interesting, morally, philosophically, whatever. And again, I think I, I feel like that's just how I want. I just want to be judged against everybody else. Yeah. Um, and if somebody doesn't like me, that's fine. But I just want I, the, the genre as an art form. The art form is interesting. The, the constrictors of the marketing is what I find mm. uh, difficult. Yeah. Todd Goldberg gave a similar answer. Mm. Um, are you familiar with his work? Yeah, I know Todd. Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, he in reading your in reading Everybody Knows and reading his latest, it's like they've got to figure it out. Like just you can you can just tell that you're just in the I mean, maybe your prime is even, you know, maybe you haven't hit your prime yet. But if but if this is your prime, it's a pretty dang great place to be. Thank you. He was in the same reading, you know, his short story, less short story collection. But he was talking about when I asked that same kind of question, he was saying, you know, hey, Steph Chaw's. You yeah. know, your house will pay that you call that whatever you want, call it mystery. Like that is a freaking great book. And I went and read and I said, Yup. I mean, yeah. that's one of the best books, you know, I've ever read. Yeah, no, Steph's a good friend of mine. And I uh she was actually the first person to give me notes on everybody knows. Okay. Um and uh no, she is she is amazing. That book is amazing. And that's exactly right. That why should that be placed in some category mm-hmm. um other than just great book? And the answer is marketing. Yeah, right, exactly, exactly. I was trying to reach for it with my foot. I can't reach. I actually have Todd's <laughs> new book, uh, Gangsters Don't Die. Oh, I nice. have a have an arc of it um, right nice. over there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I know, you know, you, you throw out the name, you throw out the name. It's it's a big name, James Elroy. You know, in the LA Times article about your latest, it, it talks about you're a big admirer of his work. And you said some of the effect of, quote, I really think that what he does better than almost anybody is create this dream world that is bigger and louder than the real world and is therefore more accurate in some ways, particularly when you're talking about things like America or Los Angeles. Everybody knows is about LA. You know, there's the ex- expression, some of the effect of like, uh, if you want to know about one man, read nonfiction. If you want to read, know about all men, all people read fiction. I wonder with, with everybody knows what you were able to do in fiction that maybe you couldn't do with nonfiction, you know, about LA, about like the human condition, you know? Sure. Well, I think, you know, particularly in these, I mean, you know, uh, every, I don't know if you're going to, we should say like everybody knows is a book about a black bag PR person whose job is not to get the good news out is to keep the bad news in mm. and nonfiction reporting about that. The truth comes out about 30, 40 years after the fact, Wow. Yeah. you know, when they feel like they can publish what actually happened. It's not going to be today. It's not going to be tomorrow. So if like I want to talk about White House papers or something like that, right? Exactly like that. Exactly how yeah. every 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 so often some story about the CIA will come out about what they did 30 years ago. And people go, oh, my God, I can't believe how bad the CIA was 30 years ago. Go back 30 years. That same thing. They're saying the same thing 30 years ago. They, uh, 30 years from now, right. a story about the CIA will come out about mm-hmm. right now and mm-hmm. we'll go, oh, my God, I can't believe um, and, and so like, if I wanted to talk about Hollywood right now, and there's a lot of true stories, uh, that are fictionalized and everybody knows Dang. I couldn't have published it if, if it was fact, but by yeah. fictionalizing it, you're able to talk about these things and, and with a freedom that fiction or nonfiction gets constrained by facts and not the truth. Like mm-hmm. nonfiction is about facts. It's about what you can prove actionably in this moment, not about the truth about what the world is like right now, necessarily. Sure. And 
books that are about nonfiction about the truth tend to be very abstract mm -hmm. because that's kind of the only level you can discuss in a nonfiction book. So, you know, and I also think that like our perceptions are part of the way we see the world. And sometimes it's important to lay out the, the story as we're feeling it mm -hmm. and not, I use an example of something a little spoilery about my next book, but, uh, did Jeffrey Epstein kill himself? I don't know. But the fact that so many people in America believe that he didn't kill himself right. is in itself important. And we need to explore that. Hmm. And all nonfiction about Jeffrey Epstein hits a wall of what you can and can't report. And part of the reasons for that are people like May and the other main characters of my book hmm. who are actively preventing the facts as we know them to come out mm -hmm. when we need to know them. And so I'm not claiming, by the way, I'm not saying that everybody knows it's some secret, like, you know, if you decode it, you'll know all the truth because I make stuff up. It's it's a blend of fact and fiction. Sure. And um, but I do think that pulp that is loud and sleazy and crazy mm -hmm. and a little bit louder than the real world can help you see the world as it actually is, because I think right. the mundane facts of existence can't capture what's happening right now. And you need to see it blown up big and then you go yes that's actually uh, that's what's happening you know what a great explanation that that makes a lot of sense definitely with when especially in the context of this book so can we say a little bit of hyperbole then i, I hope i hope the answer is yes because the book is you know pretty brutal and i i have a pretty pessimistic view of the world hmm. but in some ways i guess but can we at least say that maybe this is a little bit worse than it is in real life yeah, a little bit. It's okay. a little bit worse. It's a little okay. bit worse um, in that, you know, a lot of the violence of the world has been altered so that there aren't so many bodies on the floor anymore. Mm. You know what I mean? But I, I honestly, if you're asking me, that's what I think is 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 um, inaccurate about the book is that. Um, um, but, you know, the effects of power and and wealth and a system that is built, I, and I do mean this, it sounds cynical, but I'm, I promise you, 15 years of experience has taught me this is true. Mm -hmm. Bad behavior is not tolerated in Hollywood. It's rewarded. Mm. It's not merely tolerated. Right. And um, I've seen that prove out too many times to doubt it. And, you know, at the same time, if I was writing a, a factual book, all I would be able to do is, is tell you a story about you know, a TV writer who, who who has seen, you know, actors behave snottily. Mm -hmm. I've never been that close to like a scandal of the type of everybody sure. knows. But I have been around very wealthy, powerful people who are miserable. And mm -hmm. I have seen the systems that accrue around those people to make sure that nothing goes wrong. And I have been a part of that system. Right. I have been, I have stood there like shamefacedly with, you know, looking at my shoes while a famous person yells at somebody who doesn't deserve it. And I didn't mm -hmm. step forward. I didn't punch the guy who deserved to be punched. Um, and that is a lot of where writing Everybody Knows was about me dealing with the feelings of like my my inaction in those moments. And again, I'm not talking about covering up abuse. I'm not, I'm not sure. saying I, I'm sitting on something felonious. I'm just saying there are moments in my life where I chose the security of my job and, you know, the fact that I was making money that I couldn't make. Yeah. I'm not qualified to do anything else. So like, mm -hmm. um, but I could be, I could make a lot less money and, and that's a yeah. choice I could make and that I have in my life not made. And everybody knows is about me wrestling with that and trying to figure out if oh. there's any moral way to do this. And I, by the way, still don't 
have an answer that is yes. Sure. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, so I mean, I went back and, you know, just looked up the definitions for noir and it's a genre of crime film or, or fiction characterized by cynicism. You use the word cynical fatalism and moral ambiguity. The book, the book doesn't have the answers. The book doesn't have a happy, neat ending. And I don't think it would work if it did. Right. No, I don't think so. I really don't think so. I, yeah, all I'll say is I had a very different ending in mind mm. for everybody knows when I wrote it, but it was actually a much darker ending. Oh, so, God. <laughs> yeah. And, and I and I didn't earn it. And I'm very glad that I, I did not use the, my original ending. Um, <laughs> but uh, maybe the reader is too. Yeah, no. And, and, and that was kind of, you know, there are people who write those kind of inky black noirs where like there is literally no hope, but my mm -hmm. my own political convictions and my own. I do have an optimism in humanity's potential, if not execution, sure. but uh, that that I do think it's important to suggest that there at least is some value in fighting, even if you're not going to win. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, was it taxing on you mentally, emotionally to kind of live in the muck, you know, as you, as you wrote this book? I mean, I sort of, uh, somebody asked me one time how much research I do. And I, and I had to be honest and say, I don't research anything I'm not interested in. And unfortunately, these are the things that I'm interested in. Yeah. So, um, so no, not really. I mean, I, this is the stuff that interests me. And I, I read the LA times and clip out stories about murders and home invasions and, and drug deals gone wrong and mm -hmm. police corruption. And, and, you know, I, I, I live in, the, in this world again, I've been writing about crime in one way or another for about my whole life. And it's, mm -hmm. It's an area that I find, you know, the moral ambiguity and it's it's a dramatic stage where anything can happen. Yeah. And where, as Cormac McCarthy said, like he's really it's hard for him to engage with a story where life and death isn't on the line. Mm. I more or less walk in that same area that I, I, I want to feel because I can go out and experience, you know, bourgeois life uh anytime i want so like reading about just like people who are like kind of comfortable but well, their marriage is sad or whatever i'm sorry that i made a i made a, a, a noise there but like that's just not for me that <laughs> other people can enjoy that and i'm not a cop yeah. but like um it's not for me i i like stakes whether that's in uh crime fiction or horror science fiction political dramas you know war stories um that's that's where my interest lies. So um, so I don't know. I I have not. I mean, you know, look. If I if I just reach over here, I've got the powers of horror, which is a you know a philosophical tome. I've got a book called Snitch Jacket. Ooh. I've got Ed Brubaker's Criminal right here. Um, this is all literally within me reaching distance. <laughs> this book, Six City, which is about Definitely I think I haven't started it, but it's a book about a guy who stumbles on a Sharon Tate sex tape. Okay. Um, okay. And then down there, I've got a, a, an Andrew Vax novel and a history of the AK-47. Like this is just, dang. and this is just what I have around me because this is what I'm looking at. So like, Whoa. I'm in my zone. I'm, I'm doing yeah. what I'm, yeah. Have, have you read Roberto Saviano? What did, what, he just had a book? That... He, he did, he did Gomorrah was his. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I've read Gomorrah. And there's, I've seen the Italian movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a um, there's a chapter in that book, the original book, that is so incredibly moving in so many ways. It's resonant. It's about the AK-47, mm. about going to visit like the guy who basically created that, and just him kind of reckoning with the absolute damage is done. Right. Oh, that's interesting. It's a fascinating gun. I, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, a truly yeah. world changing gun. So. Right. Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, uh, so the book gets into, it starts off with May and May has literally like, I don't know if literally is the word. She's chopped off part of her name. She's from the Ozarks. She was Mandy May and she's summoned to the hotel, the Chateau Marmont. I don't know if I'm saying it right. Yeah. You just, you can say the T. Okay. The the famous one, right? The famous or the infamous one. Yeah. She's there doing cleanup. Like you said, what is it? keep things in, not let them out kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, you don't keep the, you don't get the good news out. You keep the bad news in. Right. And this is for, for Hannah Hurd, who's, I don't know, Lindsay Lohan or Amanda Bynes, unfortunately just, you know, recently in the news. Yeah. And, right. Um, And she has this line. I mean, obviously one of the themes in the book is, is about Hollywood and about men just being misogynistic and, and, you know, power dominated. And, and of course the word toxic but one of her quotes it really stood out to me was everybody talks about how actresses are crazy. Nobody talks about how they got that way. And again, that was Hannah. I'm just so interested in how you wrote about her, like her next arc or her arc was like, okay, you know, she's the, she was the, the tween actress star, right. Almost like a Disney channel type thing. I'm thinking. Yeah. Then she went crazy. You know, then she had the, the Britney Spears blow up the Lindsay Lohan, you know, and, and the tabloids. And I was like, all right, now she's got to get clean. There's got to be a redemptive story. You know, she does an indie. You know, yes, Macaulay it's all very plotted. Right? Yeah, right. Um, but but that line that she said is, you know, in some ways fairly basic, but so true about like what made Amanda Bynes this way. And a lot of it, unfortunately, has to do with these men who are who are basically predators, right? Um, Eric Alger, he had this this series called As If, which was really a launching pad for again these tween stars, right? And that gets to be a, a big part of the book. How would you describe um, the the PR firm Mitnick and Associates? Kind of what, you know, besides the quote you said, what is it exactly that they do? What does May do kind of on a daily basis? Well, yeah, the 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 official name for firms like theirs are, is crisis management, and basically okay. their job is to handle PR and 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 news for people who are in a position to get bad press and bad news, and specifically people with money who have that happening to us. So that can be anything from, you know, a celebrity in a scandal to a giant corporation that is fighting off a union, mm. uh, unionization effort. Um, you can, again, Google Amazon and, and, and this kind of stuff, you will find suddenly a bad news story leaks about a person uh, planning a strike uh, in some warehouse. And those, everything is, is planted. And again, like fake news is such a political term right now. And it's too sure. bad because, we really don't deal with how much of modern news is either dictated, pitched, or shaped by some mm -hmm. kind of news agent who is not the reporter and yeah. has a vested interest in the story. We don't talk about it, you know, talk about the, between the LAPD and the LA Sheriff's Department, there's something like 75 full-time PR people just handling the, the way that those two agencies are represented in the news. Yeah, I remember as a kid, when you're talking about like the LAPDS, these 75 spokespeople, I remember as a kid just being like stunned. Like I'd see the same guy on the news talking about crime and I asked my dad and he's like, yeah, there are people that have, are full-time spokesmen, spokespeople. I'm like what is like that just kind of tripped me up, right? Yeah, it's, it's, and, and again, it's all been so normalized that like, um, it has been, you know, they, you'll, you'll read a news story and it'll say X person said, 
or X person released a statement saying whatever they say. Mm-hmm. And everybody reading it, if you really stop and think about it, you go, wow, this person never said this. This <laughs> is a PR person they paid said this. That shouldn't be news at all. Like literally things spokespeople say shouldn't be treated as news. <laughs> right, right. Um, because they are they are not speaking truthfully. Everybody knows that. Like, again, I'm, I'm not trying to Everybody work the in. But like, that is the thing. That's why it's the titles. Everybody knows if you've ever read a newspaper article about anything that mm-hmm. you have in-depth personal knowledge of, most of the, or every article I've ever read that's like about a TV show I'm working on or something like that, there are three or four major factual errors in it or mm. some kind of factual errors in it. Every one. And we all, you read something about that and you go, oh, that's not right. They're spinning that. And that's the, you know, that's the studio just making a bullshit. And then you know that one's fake. And then you go and you read an article about something you know nothing about and you just believe it all. Hmm. And again, that doesn't require another thing I wanted to get across and everybody knows is conspiracies don't require some mass web of like everything being spelled out and planned and 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 incredible Byzantine plans. 95% of it, I think, at the end of the day, comes down to people doing the thing they've been enculturated and are paid Hmm. to do. So if a, if a cop shoots somebody and it's a bad shoot and they don't have to have a meeting where all the other cops go, Hey, we're going to all lie for Terry. Mm-hmm. They just kind of, they, Oh, I didn't see it. I didn't go, you know, blah, blah. Uh, if you don't want to use the cop metaphor, just think about somebody who lives in a, in a neighborhood that's controlled by a gang and they kill somebody in front of somebody. And that person goes, I didn't see anything. Mm-hmm. That is theoretically an abstract form of conspiracy. And it doesn't require the gang member to go over there and go, don't you say nothing. Sure, it's, sure, sure. It's culture. And I think that businesses and, you know, political organizations and governments function in exactly that same way that it's. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's something I have experience with of of watching people behave badly and watching everybody involved just kind of do their jobs and move around it. Don't look at that thing and and don't acknowledge this thing. And maybe we'll talk about it. And we'll feel bad about it, which is another thing I try and say in the yeah, book. Yeah, that comes through. Yes. That that there's a real feeling, I think, in America today amongst a lot of people that as long as you feel bad about climate change, that that's, that's your fulfillment. You're good. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do anything. It's it's You feel bad. So what? But like, really, you are, I think, what you do, not how you feel about it. Mm-hmm. Um. I think there's a, a, a tendency for people to think that the there's a mask that people wear and then there's the internal truth and that somehow the internal truth is true in some way and the mask is false. And I actually think the mask is truer than just some emotion you happen to experience, you know, and and um, or they're at least equally true, in my opinion. And mm-hmm. you are as much that max that you're performing as you are that interior thing that feels bad about it. And you can be all those things at once, you know? Right. Well, I mean, there's so many famous quotes, right? About mask and I don't know if it's the Hawthorne one, some about your, your face grows in your face grows to fill the mask, right? That kind yeah. of idea. Oh man. Well, there's a lot about what you just said. There's so, so interesting. The, the idea of feeling bad, I won't give away the exact specifics, but like, you know, when there's the, at the associates at the PR firm at the black, mm-hmm. black bag firm, when there's, you know, someone passes away and it's like, they say, oh, we feel bad, and they're back to work in two minutes. Yeah. If not less than that. But well, they feel bad. <laughs> they feel bad. They do feel bad, and they feel bad about firing that person's assistant right away. Sure, like, sure. 
Um, that one, that that one detail might be a bridge too far, but I don't know why they don't need her. Like, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, that uh, was she, rough. Like, well, if he's not around, so we don't need her anymore. I mean, I believe God, that you dang. know, I believe the 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 owner of the firm says in that scene something the fact of oh, she was you know, we gave her nice severance. There you go. Like, there you go. What do you want? We gave her nice severance. Punches pilot style, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm thinking of like Collagero or C from a Bronx Tale. You're talking mm. earlier about like you just kind of you're kind of acculturated to know you don't say anything. Exactly, exactly. Right. And again, like, and, and I just think that that every industry, every every place where there is power, you will very quickly become enculturated into bending to that power, or you won't last. And that's another thing that I say mm. in the book is like when people can't hang in a system like that and they fall out. Yeah. You don't think about them anymore. So you're only surrounded. I actually thought about, I think I got this from Goodfellas where they talk about how everywhere they went, they were only surrounded by each other. So it began right. to feel very normal, yes. like that this is your life. And I think that's again, true of, of police departments and other like very closed systems, including Hollywood is like that, that when, when, when you form a really tight in group, it makes a lot of behavior permissible because everybody mm. else is just, and yep. again, you don't have to talk about it. It's you an echo chamber, it. right? Yeah. It's an echo chamber yeah. and it's just, this is the world you are, you know, you're so shaped by, by the way other people around you act and feel mm -hmm. and, and your interactions with them and, and things that would have seemed crazy to you, you yeah. know, 10 years ago become very normal and, right. and, you know, that can happen in a lot of different venues. It's just the one I've seen and experienced most in is Hollywood. Years back, a friend of a friend um, was uh, worked for the Inglewood Police Department. And we did like, you know, did like a party bus. And they were the most, you know, it's probably eight or nine from the Inglewood PD. And they were nice guys. I didn't talk to maybe more one or two. But it was like, you know, nothing horrible happened. But it's just like, like you said, it's just that that family not necessarily in the positive way, you know, just that, mm -hmm. just like, a, but like, like it comes through in the book, just a bunch of frat boys. Yeah. In so many ways. Right. There's, there's a scene and it's so good because, you know, this is the LASD meaning the sheriff's department, which again, Google LASD, there's a lot going on there with the, the deputy gangs and such. And the, and they're, they're having a, a, a kill party, but they can't call it that. Yeah, and you got to use the the PC or whatever the correct wording, even though again the actions were were horrible, and getting tattooed. And there's a great scene, all in caps. They all say it in unison. They say, "Fearing for his life and the life of a fellow officer." Right? Yeah. As in, that's something that'll the newspapers and others will buy. We've done it before. That's enough to show us his innocent, usually, right? Well, it's not just the newspapers. It's literally the standard that we currently use. There's a court case that uh, defines right. this. And forgive me for not remembering the court case's name, but at some point we shifted to say that it used to be if a reasonable person would be scared for their life in this person. moment, then it's okay to kill in that mm -hmm. moment. Now it is, it doesn't matter what a reasonable person would do. If you were scared in that moment, then you were justified in pulling that trigger, which is an insane standard because it oh means God, more... Yeah frightened you are the more license to kill you have which yeah. is obviously just a terrible terrible idea precedent to start oh my god exactly look what's happening in florida with with stand your ground exactly there's so much you could do with that well yeah so just talking about like those like the real black bag organizations and stuff like that so may you know you have some flashbacks to may when she was a, of of may when she was a kid and one of her mantras is i am a bullet i am a bullet i'm a bullet and definitely throughout the book, she's, you know, she's um, 
trying to figure out for herself, like, did was she drawn to this type of job because of the person she was she already had in her? Did that, you know, did that develop it? Did, did the person was she developed as this type of person, kind of morally neutral, morally ambiguous? Was that developed just by going into that job? So I wonder kind of like how you you thought about her, like in painting her her personality and how much her history had to play with her, you know, being being a bull and being somebody who does some pretty dirty work. Yeah, I hope that it, it comes off in the book as complex and and that you can't pin it on 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 one thing. But it, you're right. The, the you know the and I think this is true of most people. The the raw materials are are innate in part and then formed by your family in part. And so you know it's, it's not a big part of the book, but it just talks about the fact that like she grew up in a household where people didn't say what they thought, and mm-hmm. you had to kind of suss out what was going on and these like you know discussions that happened beneath the surface. And 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 I do think. You know, people from my part of the country and in the Midwest, largely, I think mm-hmm. sometimes you can see that, that uh, the conversations that happen that are never straightforward, never direct. Mm-hmm. And, and that that laid, you know, a part of her personality and then even deeper, her family's specific dysfunctions taught her not just how to lie, but how to like exist as different people in different places and yeah, yeah. And, and to read rooms and to suss out interior motivations and things like that. And then you know, when she gets to L.A. and and she falls into this job, I think, again, I think this is also true, that there were a lot of jobs that she could have had where maybe this wouldn't have come out or would have just been Mm. a part of her. Um, But she she found this job. And then importantly, she was conditioned and born to not leave it, which I think is a thing that, you know, we talk about. And it comes up in the book is the idea that that the people who leave, you stop thinking about. Mm-hmm. that it feels like this is the world and may and chris both kind of exist in a world that is small but that they feel is like representative of the way the whole world works yeah and part of that is because they never leave mm-hmm. um now you might leave and find another world that is just as bad as this one but like you know i always just think that you know the the stuff even in a much smaller sense the way that tv writing is dysfunctional feels normal to me and we talk about it but Mm. but we don't act on it and we 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 feel like this is the way it has to be because the people who can't stand the way the world is who can't and and it's i'm not putting it as like toughness like it's better to stay than to leave i don't believe that at all but like oh the the people who leave are gone Mm. i mean that might sound like obvious but i just mean there's nobody around who can't hack it, who can't exist in this world, because if you can't exist, you leave, and then you you kind of stop existing. Yeah, it closes the ranks, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, so much of, you know, we talked a lot about police stuff, but like a lot of the, the you know, problems with police culture is that it's a closed society with an in-group and an out-group. And again, it's a, it's a society and a culture that, if you're a cop, most of your friends are going to be cops. The, you know, it, it's a, can be a family thing. And, and, and I think a lot of different cultures are like that, but it can be a very bad culture because it allows um, these beliefs or instances or, or activities that might seem ludicrous hmm. to start to feel very normal. Yeah. You know, like may has some self-awareness because I like to write characters who have self-awareness. I'm not, <laughs> I never, you know, and, and other people can do it and get away with it. I don't like writing characters who I feel better than, or I think mm. I'm presenting myself. You know, I don't, mm. I don't like to write a character where I know they're being just stupid and a liar, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, that's just not my interest. Like, I mean, they're liars, but like, 
I don't want to feel better than the people I write about. Hmm. Very interesting. You'd mentioned earlier that that scene from from Goodfellas where, you know, they're talking about all of them really just hung out together. Exactly. And yeah. I'm always I'm always wondering about like I always I think that's so interesting in TV shows and movies, how like there's like a picture, like it's supposedly a picture of Jimmy Conway, you know, De Niro's character. Yeah. Like did they like did they take that picture and then they started filming? You know what I mean? It's like a it's like very meta, like a picture within a picture kind of thing. Oh yeah, and I mean you know I've done it on TV shows. And yeah, you, and you uh, you oftentimes do it very early okay. in the production or before you start filming, so that you can like take a picture of them and then cut their hair and give them the uh, haircut they're going to have for the rest of the thing. Okay, you know what I mean. So it's your one chance to kind of to mess with people. So oh yeah, you know if you have a if you have a character in a TV show whose head is shaved the mm -hmm. entire time you know him. And then they show you a picture later on of him with a full head of hair. It'll feel like that picture was taken three years ago. No doubt. You know? No doubt about it. So you talk about uh, like Midwest and kind of like kind of some of the ethic there. I mean, is that like a corollary of like Midwest nice? Oh, yeah, I think so. I think so. Like uh, my partner, Megan, is from Minnesota mm -hmm. and, and and she grew up in, in the world of Minnesota nice. But yes. she had moved there as a child so she wasn't completely okay a part of it and it always it's a thing that like drives her crazy because <laughs> it's just like they will not say what's going on and so i think that's another version of it yeah for sure yeah well yeah so that that, that short flashback was kind of like her family members kind of like eating eating their shame and not not literally necessarily eating their shame like you know taking it out with food but just like swallowing their shame type of thing right yeah, and just and just stuffing things down. Just yeah. trying to stuff things down. Yeah. Exactly. You capitalize the unsaid, the word unsaid, you capitalize it multiple times throughout. And that's, you know, that's serves as a theme of sorts. I mean, we just talked about that with us pushing the shame down, pushing things down. Um, you know, towards the end, and this isn't giving anything away, but there's a really interesting, like I want to say monologue or just like piece from May, and just talking about like how it's, a, it's an ugly world out there and there are so many things that are unsaid and yes people do say things about you know okay our iphones are made by basically child you know 10 year olds eight year olds making you know working for a living those type of things and all those things that are left unsaid and you know i guess for all you, for all you can say about may she she says most of those things right She's, right you know open, <laughs> yeah you know and i think i said this in a different form earlier but um you know, she's struggling with that thing that I think is so important right now of, of um, you know, being so aware that there's so much injustice in the world that is so systemically baked in that we're, mm -hmm. we're supposed to just treat it as an unstoppable force of nature, that it right. couldn't be another way. And there's another thing that I think is a really important, you know, theme of the novel that she comes to very late um, when she is up in the hills at, at a film shoot and Hannah Heard has just thrown a horrible fit and, mm -hmm. and she has learned a lot of dark secrets and, and, and she just has this very strong feeling like this is not the way the world is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. um, which doesn't mean that there's some other way it is supposed to be, Yeah, but it does mean that, that this sense of certainty that we have with our society, that this is it, this is, there's no other way to be. This is the mm -hmm. only way to be is, is, um, you know, untrue uh, and that we give ourselves passes on, mm -hmm on our the fact that we don't have to talk about these things exactly what yeah. you're saying that we can leave the truth about our iPhones unsaid where if we had to go to that factory and and look at that little kid we wouldn't feel the same way that we do right now and we all know that we all know that and yet and yet uh, yeah and yet and and so that's the thing and I again it's 
it's what I struggle with in my life and what I'm trying to to articulate in a more you know exciting way with with May's life is this idea that okay if you accept that this isn't the way the world is supposed to be mm-hmm. then what right right yeah, not, not a lot of solutions right I mean we we know what the issues is, like you said but it doesn't mean we have a better plan necessarily right but exactly but then you get back right to that place of like well then I guess I can't I, if I feel bad Cyclical. I guess that's good enough and and that is the thing that I know isn't true and mm. again I don't I'm not saying what everyone should do with their lives I just this is again a big part of what I wrestle with personally and so that's what I'm yeah. you know I always feel like bad art is when you write about a thing that you're certain about mm. like when, when you know better you know what the answer is and you're going to tell everybody that to me tends to be bad but when you when you fly into the place where you don't know what the answer is where you don't know what to do that's when i think you're you're dealing with something interesting especially in this unbelievable you know dystopian world that you couldn't even make up in 2023 all things have happened like somebody who actually thinks they know what's <laughs> know things you know what I mean? mm-hmm. i'm just like yeah you lost me there you know you lost me there who, who knows anything these days like at all <laughs> about uh, that's anything. i mean that's a big part of the book too is right trying to figure out how to figure out what that is you know mm. and not just sinking into that kind of like the soft nihilism that's yes. so easy to soft it is sink into yes i'm thinking of uh flea from the movie the big lebowski you remember that he, he was a nihilist oh, he was the nihilist yeah <laughs> I don't believe in nothing <laughs> <laughs> but i think i think we all in modern american society anyway embrace some kind of like what i'm saying like soft nihilism of like mm. well I don't know. What am I going to do? And, um, and that's what I'm trying to break myself out of. And again, I'm not saying that as in a preaching way, because I don't, I'm trying, I'm not. Yes. Yeah. I appreciate it. You're obviously really good, you know, through your TV work and and all that. You're really good with dialogue. The dialogues you have, uh, you know, from like Cyrus and Helen towards the end that again, so many good plot points. I'm going to leave them alone for the reader, but you know, that, that Beverly Hills steakhouse, Mm -hmm. right. Helen, I just love the way that she speaks and I can picture the whole scene and I can picture her haircut. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Just like just the kind of prim and proper, but just like dropping daggers. Yeah. Right. And and, and saying things, you know, I had it wasn't my editor. I don't remember who it was. And I don't agree with this, but Hmm. but uh, I had at least one early reader who said, and, you know, Helen's correct about everything she says. And. And, you know, and again, it's that thing of like, well, what are you going to do? You can join us and be rich mm-hmm. or you can fight and and lose and not get anything. And I had at least one person tell me, yeah, no, Helen's right. That's what you got to do. And I, again, I don't agree with that, but I, I'm glad I articulated the argument well enough that somebody else would think that. Yeah, there's, you know, there's obviously so much about Hollywood. We've talked definitely about it. And again, that quote that was so moving was was Hannah Heard saying, everybody talks about how actresses are crazy. Nobody talks about how they got that way. And I'm thinking you could probably, you know, move it to all child stars and Corey Feldman and, you know, I mean, the whole deal. You know, there's, uh, I, I don't like to say who this people are stand-ins for most of the time, but okay. there's something I, I say in the in the book that I do mean to be about Corey Feldman, which is, mm-hmm. is the way that we all laughed at him. You know, uh, that he's turned into this joke where we watch his music videos and we we make fun of how how crazy he's gotten. And obviously the the quote from the book, it, it talks more about actresses. But again, mm-hmm. you know, Corey Feldman is a guy who's very open about the abuse that he suffered as a teen star. And and then, you know, the way that he and, and Corey Haim uh, tried to medicate their pain away with drugs and 
And so that if he is not well, or if he's doing something, it's again, it's a, it's a quote from the book. I don't even remember who says it. It's like, it's like if we stood outside a nuclear power plant that was leaking and pointed at all the people with tumors and laughed at them. Right. Um, yeah. And, and uh, you know, like as, as we're talking about this and I'm not, I, I almost don't want to bring it up, but like the, the news about Jonathan majors is just broken. And, and, mm. and you know, that apparently, and I, a lot of times I know about these things before the news breaks okay. and it's exactly because of the stuff in the book of nobody talks, but everybody whispers. Mm. I will say this is one I had never heard personally, mm. um, but apparently it was out there. Apparently now that he's been arrested, there's a lot of people going around and say, Oh yeah, if you were in the New York theater scene mm-hmm. at a certain time, you know, that everybody knows. And I think a lot of people want to think this stuff is done that like, you know, Harvey Weinstein got arrested and, and case closed and now we right. can move on. But like, um, that's not the case. Yeah. And, um, you know, people are still protected until it doesn't make sense to protect them, mm-hmm. you know? And that's another thing that I, I, I want to, I try and say in the book very clearly is you want to think it's just, well, the truth comes out about somebody and then we're done. Uh, but that's not how it works. It's yeah. it has to make sense for them to go down most of the time. Now this might play, prove differently. Right. Um, you know there are, there are you know charges filed, but like there's just another case here in L.A. for another guy where charges were filed and then they were dropped, and who knows what's going to happen to that other guy? You know. Yeah. And yeah. And so I don't know. You know, I I don't want to ever present my book as some kind of like moral thing mm-hmm. because there are people doing actual good work in the world not writing fun books to read that that, <laughs> that like walk the line between <laughs> exploitative or not exploit i'm not trying to be exploitative no. but i know I'm, I'm dealing in a space where you know um so anyway i'm just saying that to say i'm not presenting my book as some kind of like moral document but um right but i am trying to say things about this world and i and i hope they're coming through they definitely are you know you, you know chris is the former cop he works for that black guard like you can say nothing or, or everything but like what you know i'm thinking of like um didn't harvey weinstein work with like like a satellite group or a sub what's the, like a subcontractor subcontractor for like the mossad a lot of a lot of these guys who come out of uh who get into private security they tend uh-huh. to come there's a lot of special forces guys yeah and uh mossad is one of the major key like groups that that these guys come out of yeah Right. He definitely had ex massage guys working with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, Chris is such an interesting character. He's maybe early 40s, you know, just perfect age. I mean, that's where I'm at. Where, mm-hmm. like, you know, he's he was he was a former police officer. He definitely did some more than morally ambiguous things. He's, you know, but he's at that age. He's not old, but, you know, his knees hurting him. You know, those little mm-hmm. things I thought were great little, you know, hints and clues and stuff that you put in there. But he does have a conscience. He he tries to imagine, you know, what God would say to him. I yeah. don't necessarily know that he's a religious person, right? Um, but you know, he can definitely play the role of the tough guy. But it, but with your great writing, you can tell it's mostly playing, right? That's yeah. not mainly his main, you know, main characteristics, right? Well, right. And I think with with Chris, as as you learn very early in the book, you know, he was actually busted. Um, by a by a federal investigation to the sheriff's department, which happens fairly often here in Los Angeles. You know, mm-hmm. we have like a former sheriff in jail and things like that. But like, yeah. um, 
and, and what I never raise in the book, but I, you know, I, I think is probably true is if he had never been busted, he never would have reformed, yeah. which is not a statement about, you know, the powers of the, the legal system to do their job, because in fact, he's let off mm-hmm. of all charges and instead is kind of put in thrall to the people who saved him. And I think it's right. that experience of being wrenched out of the world he was comfortable in and being thrust in another one and, and now having to do these things where he, he he still does the awful things, but he doesn't have any of that glow and shine of getting to be a cop and having other cops around and all of yeah, that yeah, is yeah. gone. And that is the unfortunate brew. And then meeting May, I think, are the things that yeah. happen to him that allow him to have a conscience that a, that a if he was still a sheriff's department deputy, I don't think he would be any different than the other sheriff's deputies that we meet in the course of this book. Definitely. You in the in the great L.A. Times uh, piece about you, you'd. You'd said, you know, hey, this this could be seen as a Me Too book, but like that's, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth. This is that's not my place. Other yeah, people have done it. Well, yeah, that's the thing is, I, I there are people who write Me Too fiction. My friend Winnie M. Lee, who wrote the novel Complicit, mm. is is a book I like to bring up in these cases because she is a very outspoken activist and former victim who I don't know if that's the language she uses, but like who writes books that are about, you know, sexual assault and the power structures that protect people and is very much a part of that specific conversation. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think that is a novel that is a, that is a me too novel. She will call it that. Now she's called everybody knows a me too novel. And I've told her like, I don't call it that, <laughs> but you can call it. She's free to call it that if that's how sure. she sees it. But I think it's important for me personally, just to, for my own uh, feeling of well-being, that I don't present myself as somebody who is a voice of me too, because I just sure. don't think that's that's my place, you know. Right. Um, but I still want to write about the world I live in, and 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 so I'm not saying that the topics are off uh, limits to me. It's just I'm not going to position myself yeah. as a spokesperson for a movement that I I don't have the authority to be a spokesperson for. No doubt. There's there's a really moving scene where where Chris and May, they heard about another person, unfortunately, being a victim, a, a young woman being a victim of of sexual abuse. And Chris has some of the effect of like, and I felt like it's almost like a stand in for you or stand in for so many men in that, like, he was like, hey, I, I know that of the three of us, I understand it the least. Mm-hmm. Right. And I thought that was so telling and, and honest. And yes, you know, we as men, we we can't. We don't. We can't have that empathy. We can't have the hundred percent empathy. Maybe you know ninety nine, and it's we not our pl- not our place, right? It's not our place to to patronize about that. I guess. Well, and that's why you know the the the, the character you're referring to. I, I made some pretty strong decisions. You know, she is. I, I not to write the cliched character, but also, you know, not to write um, a, a character that you would expect a man to write. But um, also, it was very important to me that like. There are certain moments where other writers might not zoom out and I zoom out. And that mm-hmm. scene is written from Chris's point of view, particularly because I knew I, I didn't want to zoom in on the on the story she was telling and get into like the yeah. sordid details of it. Because, A, I just feel like that's that's just I'm not interested in zooming in on that part. Mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. not uh, it, it's the fact that it happened, not the details of it. There are again, other sure. people who can write that story and I'm not saying they can, I'm just saying, mm-hmm. you know, that's just not what I wanted. And I, and I did want Chris's reaction to it, not because the male view is like the important one, but just because I thought that was the best way to get through that scene and anchor it and let everybody, you don't need to, to tell people that sexual assault is awful. Like they know it, you know, you don't have to linger in the details. And again, if somebody else chooses to, I'm not, I'm not a cop. I don't tell people how to write, but like, just for me personally, that's how I do it. 
the, just with Hollywood in general, kind of wrap up that little theme there. There's, you know, the PR machines. And again, so much of this is like microcosm, macro, you know, like the micro, I should say the macro, like what happens in Hollywood is often indicative of the whole world or the whole country, you know, et cetera. But there's a, there's an incredible, uh, I guess, anecdote or metaphor about like the French will often eat the whole bird, right? Mm -hmm. They'll eat the bones and everything, but there's, but they'll put like, what, like a napkin over their head. Yeah, it's a specific kind of bird, and I can't remember the name of it right now. It's this very tiny bird that they uh, they drown in 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 some kind of liqueur, okay, uh, and then roast, and you just eat it whole, and and it's considered um, such a uh, like such a, almost a sacrilege to do this to this bird mm -hmm. that yes, you put the napkin over your head to hide your to hide your sin from God, essentially, okay. um, and you know the idea being. That, that may realizes that's her job is basically to be that napkin. Yeah. Uh, which I think works also because the napkin is just kind of symbolic. Like a lot of this stuff is that, yep. you know, you hire somebody and they give a statement and it doesn't convince anybody, but it still has power to let, mm -hmm. you know, okay, I don't believe that statement, but I'm still going to act like I believe it because we need to keep filming this movie or whatever yes. it is. You yes. Know? Yes. Oh man. So true. Yeah. I mean that, I, I think I just paused and thought of like the, so many different ways that that, that napkin is representative, right? I mean, <laughs> just of the world as a whole. So, you, you know, you talked about power. You make such an interesting distinction between power and visibility. They're not necessarily the same, right? Well, yeah, power and visibility aren't the same. Power and responsibility aren't the same. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in fact, like May thinks like our job is to disconnect power from responsibility, <laughs> um, which again is a, is a thing that's very familiar to people in Hollywood uh, where there are people who have a lot of power, but should they fail, the blame somehow yes. falls elsewhere. Yeah. Um, and they have a lot of power, but there's somebody else scrambling behind the scenes mm. to actually make everything happen. Mm. Uh and and that is the person who will get fired if it doesn't work. You know? Right. So um, and again, it's just like the general sense of power of like people who have, you know, their hands on, on the system where they could they could maybe wrench it or tear it down or change it a little to, to maybe mitigate some harm. Mm -hmm. um, but nobody expects them to. No. And they don't. Yeah. No. Yeah. The. Um... You know, our, our English teachers, our writing teachers say, you know, don't use the passive voice. But man, in those in those statements and those PR re releases, right, there's so many just like put the blame somewhere else. Not, you know, just the blame's over there. It's not here. Just so much passive voice was done by or was uh, received well, by. Right. Well, or, or you know, not to just keep ha ha uh, harping on the cops thing, but like and then, you know, you'll, you'll read a paragraph that is all active verb, active verb, active verb. And then. And then an officer involved shooting occurred. Yes. And you're like, wait, what? Yeah. What what does that mean? And and it's such a, a yes. That is again, that is a trying to to remove responsibility. Mm -hmm. Like very actively, you can just see it happening in that that phrase of like an officer involved in yeah. how involved? Like involved in what manner? Like oh, and then they caused it to take place place that they pulled a trigger on a gun yeah and you know like again all of that language is and yes you see it in in you know legal filings you see it in legal courts filing. you see it in, in any um you know any poll or yes yeah, statement mm -hmm. that a politician makes and oh yeah 
you know, people will look at you in the face and they will they will tell you that this politician is not responsible for any of the bad things that happened under um, their watch. And if you don't vote for them, the world will fall apart. And you, those can't be like either they're powerless or they're powerful. Like you have to uh, decide, like you have to decide um, if they're only responsible for the good things that happen. Mm. How does that work? Explain to me how that works, because yeah. it feels like if you're responsible for the good things that happen, you're responsible for the bad things that happen. You would think so, right? Mm. Yeah. It's really interesting too about the book is talk about it being morally ambiguous or not, not a lot of moral clarity because that's the world. That's, that's the world. But, you know, just the idea of like, sometimes people do bad things just because they, they want action. They, they're bored, right? Like, um, you know, Chris at times he feels fear that makes him, that scares him, but also makes him feel alive. Yeah. Right. I mean, in, in what both of them do, May and Chris, you know, they don't, a lot of times they don't think too hard about the whys. And I think Dan, the mentor, even told May that, right? I think one of their first kisses or you know, one of the kisses that was that was chronicled in the book is, you know, there's helicopters swarming the beach, some crazy police action. And they're just like, you know, oh, this is cool, you know? Well, and it's specifically <laughs> the police action because they have just staged the scene of a person's death and they are watching oh, the, God, the results oh, yes. of that. Thank you. That's a huge, that's a huge detail left out. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's just, but it is true that I think it's important to me to, to complicate motives where if they just felt bad about what they did, that mm -hmm. would not be interesting. But so you have to figure out the why. Yes. And again, as someone who works in Hollywood, there are, there are moments where you're standing around going, this is really cool. Mm -hmm. like, you know, you're on a film set and there's a famous person and we're going to blow up a bus today. Mm -hmm. and this is really cool. And then that, that famous person yells at somebody for 30 minutes and you don't okay. do anything and okay. you feel awful. And then you go over to craft services and you eat something to eat your shame. And then, <laughs> then you blow up a bus later and it's really cool. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I just want to complicate it and and make it clear that like these things aren't easy and that um that there's not that um all pleasure is bad, but that 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 sometimes bad things are pleasurable and, and we have to like it's pleasurable for May to make money. Like she, mm -hmm. you know, she she lusts after a house in Los Angeles, which is an expensive proposition, right. you know. She enjoys her life. There's a, you know, it's not that she spends a ton of money on clothes, but it's clear that she like likes clothes she likes you know um mm -hmm. her life she likes her apartment in, in a cool part of town like these are all things that she has grown accustomed to and they're nice you know they talk a few times they they'd broken up you know i don't know years back um before and just things about like the life with like a capital l like mm -hmm. is it the life for each other and you know a lot of you know readers would think well it doesn't necessarily have to be a binary thing right you can have both but this is this idea of like action and if they're going to pursue the action they're both going to pursue it 100 percent, right well there's no stepping. there's also the idea that i present that 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 was so shocking to each other about each other is that um they both live these lives of complete lies mm -hmm. and when they are with each other they find that too difficult because they see each other too clearly yeah they can't lie to each other and that becomes a place that it's not tolerable for them particularly may and i i think um, you know, I don't know if I stated explicitly, but I feel like she's the one who ended it the first time they dated. Okay. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's because like she can't tolerate it and, and she has to choose like confronting all of these lies that are in her life and all the things that she's told herself to make her life permissible or Chris. And it's not like she really loves Chris, but mm -hmm. you know, and that's a big ask. It's a big ask. Yeah, to, it is. You know, and 
And I think that's part of it. And, and I think that, you know, there is also the fact that she does believe that she is, has a purpose or at least a thing that she is good at and whether she's doing it for good or evil, it's really the thing she's supposed to be doing. Lastly about the book, you know, I'm someone who lived in LA for 13 years, love LA, miss it. You know, there's, there's the action part of it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's different when you're young and single. Yes. There's definitely some there you want to, I'm, I'm not a skier, but you want to go skiing. You're there in two hours. You want to go to the great, you know, Grammy museum. You want to go to the beat, you know, there's everything's yeah. there. Great cuisine, you know, all of the above art of all types. Is this like, I mean, the, the phrase is writ large. I don't know if it's writ small. Like, is this, is the LA that you, you, you build, is this like America writ small? Like, did it have to be LA in other words? I mean, I, I've said this before in other contexts, but I, I do believe that LA is the, actually the great American city. Hmm. Uh, and I, I think it, I would say it's America writ large. It is, it is everything that makes America, America turned huh. up loud. People want to posit that like, Oh, the middle of the country is America, which I find bullshit. Like, <laughs> I, and I'm from there. And I'm sorry, right. that's like America is cars. America is pollution. America mm. is money. America mm. is real estate. America is fame. And America is crime. Yep. And that is Los Angeles. Los Angeles. <laughs> New York City is, is like a holdover from Europe. It's okay. walkable. It, it feels more like a European city than Los Angeles is an American city. It's all huh. it's all based around cars. Like if it's not all based around cars, it's not an America. It's not the true American city. Sure. Um, but again, it's just you know, and, and America is the drive west, the drive to hmm. keep claiming land until we hit the 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 ocean. And I, I think this is a phrase from my new book. But like Los Angeles is America with its back against the wall because there's nowhere left to go. You know, I like that. Thank you. Um, And and uh, and so, yeah, I I do think that for me, it has to be Los Angeles and it's Los Angeles because Los Angeles, exactly what I was saying about pulp and pulp's place Mm -hmm. at telling the story better because it's louder and and clearer and you can just see it all happening because it's so bright and powerful. That's Los Angeles. Los Angeles is is America neon, you know, it's. so that's why it's got to be that for me. And and at least for the book I'm writing now, and I think the book after this, it's going to all be Los Angeles. Yeah. Can you can you just um, wait for about a minute and a half? I'm just going to go ahead and erase that part so that I can use your line and, and say that I came up with it. Is that cool? <laughs> <laughs> it's no. in the new book. I got right. <laughs> to protect it. But, for, uh, those, for those listening, again, you know, Google LASD gangs, you know, that, that comes through obviously is very LA, but unfortunately a yeah. lot of police departments. But even, um, you know, the part about John Montez and, you know, I can say a lot about him, but just like very realistic from what you've read and from what you hear and, you know, people that I've known, younger people that I've worked with, like the idea of like the cow gangs and Mm -hmm. being caught up in the system, right. And how it really can affect lives often arbitrary. Yeah. I, the story about John Montez, which his mother tells about him um, Mm -hmm. being pulled over by a cop at a street race and, and writing all these, uh, the cop writes all these tickets and puts them in a gang registry Aside from the part about putting him in the gang registry, I saw that happen to a kid. I was doing Whoa. a ride along with a sheriff in Compton and we came on a street race and and kid got pulled over by this cop. This cop was chasing him. He wasn't one of the racers. He's one of the kids watching the race. Yeah. Got in his car and tried to drive away because the cops came in very loud, sirens blazing and everybody ran, which is sure. exactly what the cops wanted to happen. And this kid that the, the cop I was with, uh, cop got on his ass, was pulling him over and the kid panicked. It was clearly panicked. Mm-hmm. and he pulls into an oncoming off-ramp mm-hmm. immediately recognizes what he's doing and then backs up and turns around and pulls over that was it that was the car chase um and i watched this cop 
write this kid $3,000 worth of, of moving violations. Oof. Kid got out of the car and this cop said, his mom's going to lose the car over this. Oh. And, uh, you know, I didn't say shit. I'm not going to act like I said shit. I was in the backseat of a cop car. I kept uh-huh. my mouth shut. And I'm not, again, I'm not proud of that. I'm not, again, that's, these are the kind of feelings that I'm trying to deal with yeah. by writing these books is that I wish I'd said something. I mean, yeah. I don't know what I, it wouldn't have changed anything, but I'd feel better about myself. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But no, so I saw that happen. So I know it happens. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the news, uh, particularly last year while I was writing this book or the year before, um, about cow gang registries and, mm-hmm. and how cops abuse them and, and just put people in because they're in a car with somebody else. So yeah. like, uh, and again, I think this is in the book, but like being in a gang is something you can catch from the air, you know? Mm. Well, so, you know, we have Parker, who's a really interesting and and shady and all the above character. He's He's like the city councilman, like in West Hollywood. He has some really interesting things to say, t- to say the least. But he talks about, you know, the city has no memory. He remembers when, you know, West Hollywood, when, you know, like the gay community would especially be be targeted and chased. And he basically said, you know, hey, the city has no memory, but I but I keep mine. Right. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, the dirtiness of politics where, you know, he's got blackmail on people. They've got it on him. Um, I know that it was definitely it definitely sounds similar to uh, to a case, right, to a case um, with one of the politicians in L.A., and there's a lot there about power, you know, almost like Harvey Weinstein type. In the end, you have this line that that shows up, um, I think, on one of the vegan menus, you know, in Silver Lake or Echo mm. Park, one of those. And it's similar to the napkin one, but it's um, we'll leave it here because it's, it's very deep and it, it, it's so much to say about this incredible book. And it's, quote, we cannot escape the violence inherent in eating. Yeah, I uh I really did that. That is something I did not see on a wall in Atwater Village, which that scene is set in Atwater, yeah. which is my old neighborhood. While I was writing this book, I was living in Atwater. That's a real restaurant, but that phrase is actually something I read on a wall in a restaurant in Portland, and I uh-huh. I saw it on a wall and I wrote it down. Like I am using this in a book because I think again, I guess that's true. I think people would argue that's true, but like I think people will can use a statement like that to justify a lot of things that might not be inherent. Right. Eating, you know, um, inherent is the key word. Yeah. Yeah. Inherent. And on all that it implies, like, again, uh, we, we like to come up with these phrases that we can say, you know, oh, there's no, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. So I'm going to do whatever I want because yeah. there's nothing ethical I can do. Uh, right. I feel bad about it again is that, yeah. Right. So, but you're right. That is a, that is a key phrase. And I'm glad, I'm glad you noticed that. Yeah. Well, you know, it is a book that you, I mean, you say straight out is it's about moral, there's more ambiguity, there's more, there's no moral clarity, there's not a lot at least, but it, it's a book that makes you think so much about, about the micro, about the macro, for those of us who are interested in Hollywood or politics, all the above. Like I said, I mean, it's clear that you are a writer just in your, you're like in your Michael Jordan, like 1993, 1994, whatever, you know, his prime was. And, uh, you know, just thanks so much for talking to me. It's been a pleasure. And everybody knows is so freaking good. Thank and you. I cannot wait to go back. I got to go back and, re- and read uh, She Rides Shotgun. I read the first couple pages and that description of the uh, kind of like the shot caller in prison. Mm-hmm. Damn. Thank you. That is characterization like like I've never. I mean, that was incredible. So thank just, you, you know, again, want to thank you so much and, and wish you great luck. And, and thanks for kind of letting us get into the lab a little with you and talking about the rationale and the background. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Uh, These were great questions. I really appreciate it. Continue great luck to you. Thank you. You too.
a pleasure it's been today to speak with Jordan Harper. Continue good luck to him with his writing, and I'm so looking forward to continue to follow his career and his important work. Thank you for listening to episode 175 with Jordan Harper. You can find this episode on YouTube. You look at the Chills at Will podcast channel. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. Sign up now for the Chills at Will Podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. My last name is R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes and merch. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often-ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 176 with Reagan Petruka. She writes, edits, and consults on professional and creative bases. Head of a Gorgon is her debut full-length poetry collection. Her debut poetry chapbook, An Animal I Can't Name, won the 2015 Two of Cups press competition. This episode will air on April 4th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Jordan Harper, whose work, like everybody knows, gives you chills at will.